Hey, everyone. If you've been enjoying this podcast and these conversations, you might really enjoy this new group I'm starting specifically for therapists. This group is for you if you're a therapist interested in learning new strategies based on the internal family systems or parts model, among other frameworks. Strategies to help your clients, but also strategies to help you explore and deepen trust with yourself and therefore help your clients do the same thing. It's for you if you want to join a group of people who are thinking creatively about how to become more effective therapists, who show up as truth tellers about what truly works for healing and what doesn't, and also to connect with a group of people who want to learn more about a life that feels courageous and connected to what matters most to you. This group will involve confidential Zoom calls where you can discuss client cases and get feedback and access to Voxer, which is an audio app that I absolutely love, where you can process pre or post session with a client to help identify what is coming up for you as a provider as you work with certain clients so that you can really practice having compassion for those parts of you while building on your ability to be a really effective healing therapist. This group will also include a book club component where we'll read books that I found most helpful in my journey of becoming a better therapist, but almost more importantly, really living a life that feels meaningful, connected, joyful, and feels great. The first book we read will be the No Bad Parts book or audiobook by Dr. Richard Schwartz. And I have several ideas about other books that we might do after that, but this will be TBD as this is going to be a co-created process. If you are interested in learning more about this group and potentially joining our next small group cohort, please email me directly at info at drshawnhondorp.com. I'm truly so excited about this group. We've done a little pilot group and it's going very well. And if you're intrigued too, then I really hope to hear from you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Sean Hondorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Also, if you are a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional and you work with people with disordered eating or who are struggling with eating and weight concerns, uh, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So I, I developed this after a workshop we did recently. And um, to be honest, I don't exactly know how many people listen to this podcast that are 
professionals versus individuals. So uh, I'll be excited to, if you are a professional listening to this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email or say hello. Um, But if you're someone who you've been working with a client and maybe a client says something like, I really like intuitive eating, but I ultimately really want to lose weight, or in your opinion, they just, they have a hard time not focusing on weight loss and you notice it kind of gets in the way of them doing what they want to do or getting in touch with their body. And as a professional, you're not necessarily sure the best ways to guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight, but you're also, um, you want the best for them and you want them to build up their own self-trust, but you're not sure what to do. You might empathize with them. You might tell them the science about dieting and weight loss and um, trying to convince them to not to diet. But ultimately, you might feel a little bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them without imposing your own agenda, which tends to backfire. So I created this free step-by-step guide to walk you through my number one favorite exercise. This is based on internal family systems theory, my favorite thing. Um, And it helps you help your clients navigate this nuanced dynamic with the different parts of them that still want to lose weight. So as a professional, it's my favorite way to help clients build trust while also taking the pressure off of me as a professional to know the exact right advice to give or say. So it's a really great tool. It's a win-win. You can grab it for free and exactly how to do it at drhondorp, D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash parts, P-A-R-T-S. So grab it for free today at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. And if you use it with a client, make sure you email me and let me know. All right. And just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. If you need a professional to guide you, please, please get one. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right, everyone. So welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I have another, I think, fun topic today. I guess I'm biased. And we have Taylor back with me to help me talk about this fun topic. So welcome back, Taylor. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about how IFS or internal family systems and tap dancing have helped me become more embodied in my in my body. <laughs> so this is actually kind of a follow-up on a discussion I started with Kim Daniels two episodes ago, which would have been, let me look, um, episode 97. This it just kind of naturally in my discussion about IFS with Kim, we both kind of shared that we've done some different creative activities as adults and it's been really fun and it was the day before my dance recital so I've had my dance recital and I'm going to talk a little bit about just my experience with dance as an adult and how it's been and how IFS has influenced that experience so that's what we're talking about today so thanks for being here again with me Taylor. I'm so excited to be back. Okay so you want to share your experience with tap dancing using IFS Why do you want to share this story? Yeah, so I think I want to share it because it's been awesome. (laughs) And I just want people to know the, it is an example of a way that a creative activity or movement, or maybe not, might be a way that someone could actually incorporate that into their own 
healing journey. I also kind of, I guess, want to make a plug for IFS um, and how if you're using it, it can be really helpful with clients, but it can also really be helpful for you as an individual. So that's my main thoughts about it. Do you want to tell us more about Adult Tap and you getting involved with dance or why did you do it as an adult? Yeah, so it kind of just happens. We're beginning to come out of the pandemic, although we started tap with masks on. It was beyond 2020, I do know that. And I remember just really missing and just, you know, there was a lot going on for most of us. Um, So I was like on this email list because my daughter had done a six week session at the studio and they emailed and they're like, hey, we're doing adult tap. It's six weeks of a beginner adult tap. And I said, that sounds awesome. Why not? So that's what made me sign up is I tend to be sort of like, yeah, sure. Let's try stuff. And I danced growing up, but I did not do tap. So I went and I bought the shoes and the dance class was super affordable. The dance class itself was less than the shoes. So I loved it. And then I decided to transition. They have an intermediate advanced class after the six weeks. So transition to try that and have been doing it ever since. So it's been about two years and I've had two recitals, which was funny. So the the beginner class does not have a recital because it's just six weeks and the intermediate advance has a recital. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, there's no way you, I'm going to go dance on stage as an adult, but it turns out I did and I've done it twice now. So that's, (laughs) that's my story. You went again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, an interesting journey. Uh, what is your history with dance? So I didn't do tap, but I did uh, jazz, ballet, and I guess lyrical for a while and point for a while. And I was pretty into it. Um, I started when I was eight. So older than my daughter, my daughter's five. And I was like, uh, I was a little hesitant. In fact, she did the six week mini session and maybe we'll get to it in a second, but I didn't necessarily want to put her in dance that early for a number of reasons partly mostly because it just I was like feels young like to start and I wondered if she might get really into it and want to do it forever and that's a long time of dance because when I started at eight I stayed in the studio dance for 10 years and then I danced I did the palm team in college but it was only two years because the team started when I was a junior in college I did not make the Michigan State dance team. That was one of my failure experiences. But dance always felt to me like so close yet so far. It felt like it could be a really great healing experience. And I remember watching older girls dance and really being told my whole dance career, like dance with more emotion. But I I really couldn't. I was not embodied. I was very fixated on how I looked. I loved dance, but it never was the full thing that it could have been for me, which I didn't really realize at the time. Mostly I just liked it for the most part. You know, I don't really think of dance as fully contributing to my eating disorder, but it didn't help. But I don't necessarily feel like it caused it, although who knows. (laughs) But yeah, I kind of healed up relationship with food-wise. So my eating stuff started around when I was 16, kind of later than some but pretty fixated on how I I looked, not just body size wise, but also very fixated on doing it right um, on stage, like doing the moves right and not messing up. 
totally. I feel like, especially in sports where there's a judge, I don't know if dancing, maybe some of them have judges. Yeah. Well, competition I did for a year. So yes, there is. You kind of programmed to reach a certain judgment <laughs> score. Yes. Well, and your teachers are always judging and giving feedback and hopefully in a way that feels supportive, but uh, mine was not, it wasn't the most supportive environments. It wasn't the worst, I guess, but it wasn't the most either. So you mentioned your daughter is dancing. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from watching her dance or even listening to her coach's feedback? Is it different than yours? Well, so she is still five. I think she did the mini session when she was four and I said, okay, well, we're not going to do a recital this year and I actually did a recital the first year with she was not in dance anymore I'm like I got into it I'm like now I'm just doing dance because I wanted her to start kindergarten and just not have like a bunch of activities because she already does swim once a week so it was mostly practical last fall I enrolled her in this one couple hour um, palm and dance clinic put on by the local high school dance team and she was super nervous um, but she got there and she had so much fun. And I, I came and I was like, it had been like a three or four hour little clinic. It was super cute. And I came and watched the end of the performance. They watched them actually perform, but they also just turned on music and they were just like dancing around. And the way that she dances is so not concerned with how people view her. And she's still at the age where she's just like feeling in her body, like, doing her thing and just free. So I was watching her dance. I think it was last October. And I was like really having to hold back bawling my eyes out because I think what it did is connect with a part of me that never felt that with dance. And there was like a lot of grief there, I think, and just seeing what dance could be and how it could feel. And so that convinced me that I think she would love dance and I, it was worth giving it a try. Um, so I did enroll her and she did have her recital um, along with me just this past month. Mm -hmm. But I think what it showed me is like, that's what dance is supposed to be for, for everyone. And she hasn't lost that yet. And I want her to experience that. Hopefully she can maintain that sense if she does choose to keep dancing. But it really allowed me to connect with that part of me. And there's like a grief of like what dance could have been for me. And I think what I've done is, I, I don't know, I've done that in different ways. Like I've listened to different songs that I used to dance to. And I remember feeling super not embodied and very stiff and very focused on the movements and, and really just connecting with the meaning behind that dance. Um, there were some dances that we did that were really beautiful and really moving, but I couldn't connect with it. I didn't really feel fully safe to do that. And, and not to mention, it's not all intense negative emotion. Um, I think just connecting with the fun of dance is that's what my daughter's doing, right? Like it, it's been awesome. And so the story regarding my recital is that my daughter had her recital at two and my recital was at five. So they have like different shows. So we came in and watched my daughter first and it was so interesting. I was watching her and noticing that I, well, let me back up just a sec. The recital was on Saturday. We did a dress rehearsal on Thursday. My daughter and I both went to our dress rehearsal and my daughter just 
lights up on stage. She like has so much fun. <laughs> like she's just like, I was a little nervous, but she just gets up there and she just does her thing. And it's so fun to watch. They, it was like a little hip hop routine. It was so cute. Um, <laughs> and I went up on stage Thursday and this happened the last dress rehearsal too. And the last recital, like last year. And last year, I was just like, whatever, I'm getting through it. I'm an adult doing tap on stage. Like, I don't care if I feel nervous. Like, I was just nervous last year. And like, I'm just, it is what it is. And Thursday at our dress rehearsal, I was really nervous still. And I was like, I wanted to feel more embodied. Like, I wanted to be able to like let go of that part of me that's been so focused on how I look to other people and so concerned with really, I think of it as like a impression management. I've learned to be like, look a certain way. So it's this weird combination of like, you're an adult and a stage with mostly kids. And so like, you're, you're the adults. So you're, you're kind of trying to look cool, but then you're kind of like last year, someone like said, like, we're kind of cringy and it's like kind of trying to embrace the cringy, but it, it all just impacts my ability to just show up authentically and like have a good time with the music and with the song. So Thursday rehearsal came and went and I just was up there like not embodied at all. Like, I mean, I had fun. I was so awkward and I just felt awkward and I'm sure no one else noticed this, but this is just, or maybe they did. I don't know. I don't really actually care, but I wasn't able to get that part of me to like chill and step aside so I could just be myself and be in my body on stage and so I had the discussion with Kim Daniels for the podcast on Friday so it's between Thursday and the show so I'm watching my daughter and I'm realizing like I'm not worried about how she's gonna show up on stage like I know she's probably gonna have fun and if worst case if she has a bad experience on stage I feel very confident that I can meet her where she's at like if she messes up or she's disappointed but it was all related to unfortunately or fortunately, this is just the facts of this part of me has learned. Like I was really fixated on having a recital experience at five that I would feel proud of or feel good about. And I really did want this like impression management part of me to chill so I could just have a good experience. A couple of things probably helped the experience be what it was. I talked to one of my other adult tappers and she was just like, yeah, I get a little nervous, but once I'm on stage, I just love it. And I just have like a great time and I just love being on stage. And I'm like, okay, I can channel that. Like I can do that. And then the time that the impression management part tends to happen in the song right before we go on. And what happened was we were supposed to go fifth and we ended up going fourth. So all of a sudden it was just time to go. And I think that helped me <laughs> to not get too much in my own head. But long story short, I went out there and I had so much fun and I've never, I don't think I've ever had that much fun on stage ever. And I've danced for many years and I actually did mess up a little bit. So the part of the impression management is like, don't forget the steps, don't mess up. And I don't think anyone else would notice that I messed up, but I didn't care. Like my, my actual goal was achieved, but it was because of this sort of parts model and being able to understand and appreciate the role of the protective nature of that, trying to make myself look cool <laughs> and ultimately not worrying about that. And, and it was a very freeing experience. Aww. What are some of the barriers many people face in terms of embodiment? So there's a lot. My barrier has really just been, it hasn't been fully safe for me to feel the full extent of what I've 
felt. But one thing that I probably don't talk about enough on this podcast, um, because it's an area that I am still learning about. And sometimes when I'm still learning about something, I feel like I can't talk about it yet. But one thing that's not really an issue for me actively because of my size privilege and my body size is it's hard to be fully embodied when you have weight bias that exists and fat phobia that exists and you've internalized that as a protective mechanism. So, you know, one thing I noticed in this recital, this studio does a very good job of trying to be very inclusive. Um, They're intentional about it. That's why I chose them. And there's still not a lot of body diversity on the stage. And so it's an increased level of a barrier to true embodiment. If you're going on the stage and your body doesn't necessarily look like a traditional thinner dancer body. Like I said, I do think there are places that are trying to be more inclusive. I also think that we have a long way to go. Um, In fact, I was just in a meeting last week where we were talking about the book Fat Talk by Virginia Soul Smith, who's been on NPR and some bigger platforms lately. And we were talking about some of her comments she made in a podcast about sports not being accessible um, to a lot of different people who have marginalized identities, um, either due to finances, either due to not feeling safe, feeling like you're going to show up and get shamed for your body size, ableism, and there's so many different types of oppressive environments that really don't make it fully safe for people to be embodied. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. And, you know, for people like myself or people with more relative privilege own our responsibility to help kind of create these environments. I think I always say, like, there's so much opportunity for businesses to create inclusive environments. Actually, just this weekend, I was at a run, a community run that by someone named Sammy B, who I invited on the podcast, who's going to come on. She identifies uh, as queer and she's like creating this really inclusive community. What I've noticed about inclusive communities as someone who gets to participate in them sometimes is that everyone benefits. It feels so much better for everyone involved, including myself who may or may not necessarily have needed that community because most embodiment, whether it's a running group or a dance class, um, opportunities are relatively accessible to me at present. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that. And it's so worth the work to try to figure out a safe place to move towards this embodiment and move towards helping the parts of you that have been protective step back when it is truly safe to do so. When it isn't truly safe to do so, we probably don't want to do it, unfortunately. And there are protective parts of us or maybe for people that are in different body sizes, maybe they have protective parts that hold them back from doing a dance class with a recital because that doesn't feel safe to them. Or maybe they just do the dance class and they skip the recital, which is allowed too. But yoga studios that are trying to have more inclusivity or like less mirrors or just things that help people to feel safer in their body. But I think we have a long way to go, but I hope that we'll continue to make steps in that direction. Definitely. How do we start taking steps in that direction to make it feel more safe or how we can become more embodied? Yeah. So I think um, lots of things. I think one, we as individuals can just get creative and think about 
what might feel really good to us. Maybe we think back to childhood and what felt really great to us then. And maybe we, I think it can be really fun to reclaim some of those activities. And then maybe as a kid, we couldn't have those protector parts fully step back. So if something already called to you as a kid, I think that's a great place to start. But just listening to what other people find or what they liked as a kid or watching kids play and just seeing what appeals to you. Not everything that a kid does with play will appeal, but I think just getting really curious, whether that is movement, sport, we've kind of focused on that here today, but it doesn't have to be that, right? It can be Kim's example was related to singing, playing the guitar, art, anything with a creative focus. It doesn't have to look like one way. It could be a client who loves sorting things. Like it can be anything that gets you into that flow state and helps you to really feel good in your body. So really just listening, what is cultivating joy or connection or some of those really positive feelings feel like in my body and moving towards that. I hope as professionals explore that maybe for themselves, also looking at just where else are in their community are, are doing this work or creating these spaces because usually we do need a safe space to explore this and figure out what it looks like and supporting those businesses that are maybe creating more inclusive spaces and continuing to have these conversations to get curious and, and hopefully realize for most of us we hold privilege and bias where it's like that's you know for me being like oh shoot yeah running isn't that inclusive <laughs> And I didn't realize that because I have tons of privileges where I haven't had to worry about that very much. And that's not cool. So just listening to other people's experience and having the, the conversation. Definitely. Why is this important for the psychology wellness's mission? Yeah. So as you know, one of the things that I'm committed to is being more open with the mission that is so important to me and that I think continues to attract amazing interns like yourself who are ready to fight for this mission. So our mission is really building trust with our bodies or helping professionals help their clients build trust with their bodies so that we all can live more courageous and connected lives. And I think that, you know, life is challenging and filled with pain and struggle. And so if we can learn to cultivate joy and connection through embodiment and whether that's via movement or any of these activities, I think it will help us all feel sustained in doing really meaningful work and digging in and digging into the discomfort. So I think it all feeds off of each other. So my hope is that people will see the benefit of that and be excited to explore that for, for themselves and or their clients. Thank you for sharing. This is such an amazing story. I can so see Claire and her little body like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <For> fun. <laughs> yes, I know. I'll have to. Mm, I do have a video, but there's I don't share my kids on social media. So you'll just have to picture it in your mind's eye. Taylor, and I'll share it with you. <laughs> or if you know me, I'll share it. But um, yes, it's it is. It's kids teach us so much if we let them. So, yeah. Thank you for being here and helping me share it. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from my mom's podcast. Make something from my mom's podcast, please. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.